Well, good morning. Welcome to 2022. I want to say a word just briefly. Thank you for all of you who've prayed for me. I'm three weeks removed from back surgery, lost a little bone, and lost a lot of pain. And so I'm very, very thankful for that. Um, I am recovering well. Um, I asked the surgeon right before uh, we went into surgery if when it was all said and done, I'd be able to play violin. He said, oh, yes, no problem. I said, that's remarkable. I've never been able to play it before. So if you want uh, the name of my surgeon, I'll be glad to give it to you. Um, I'm very, very thankful and am recovering and um, moving around when Pastor called me and asked about um, being able to speak today, I can honestly say I didn't hesitate. And so um, I'm excited. I want to take every opportunity the Lord gives me to, to handle the Word of God and trust uh, even what we just read, that when we're, we're weak, He's strong. And so um, I know that He'll use His Word this morning, even if I don't do what I normally do the way I normally do it. And so that's okay. So take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to a very, very familiar passage of Scripture. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I like to think through language a lot, particularly the communication side of language a lot. I think as we come to the scriptures, there are a couple of polar dangers as we read the Bible. I think one of them is that we can read the Bible too generally. Like we read it like it's a story over there somewhere. We don't put ourselves enough in the text. I think the other polar danger is that we read the Bible too specifically, and we put ourselves in all kinds of places that we shouldn't be. And knowing that those are two polar dangers, if you will, I think it's really important then that we think through, well, where should I be? And so I always tell people, as I come to the Word of God, I tell them to ask some key questions. Who wrote it? Who did they write it to? Why do you write it to them? What did it mean to them? Now, what does that mean to me? And I think that's a really helpful approach. So who wrote this, right? Knowing who the author was, because words can never come to mean anything that the author didn't intend them to mean. I think that's really important. Authorial intent is actually where meaning is found. So who wrote this? Who did he write it to? Why did he write it to them? What did it mean to them? Now, what does that mean to me? And I think we need to take that last step to find ourselves in the text. God, out of what you are saying, what are you saying to me? And specifically, how do I live that? Have you ever found yourself in a conversation and at some point you allowed yourself to become objective to that conversation? So you're subjective, you're having the conversation with the person, but at some point your brain is detaching, you're thinking, there's something else going on here. And when they walked away, you asked yourself this question. Why did he say that to me? Ever find yourself, maybe it's just as I get older and my kids, you know, you know there's ulterior motives sometimes. And they're talking to you about stuff and they walk away and you think, wait a minute. Did I just say something I didn't mean to say? But they got exactly what they wanted? You know, you, language is fascinating. Well, I want to encourage you this morning as you read your Bible, and in particular as we come to this passage of Scripture, to ask yourself, why did he say that to me? Why is Paul saying that to me? One of the challenges, I think, when we come to passages of Scripture that are filled with promises is that we tend to make ourselves 
the end of the promise. Someone makes a promise to us. God makes a promise to us in Scripture, and we're like, oh, wow, that's really cool. Praise God, he made that promise to me. Or a passage filled with blessings. We make ourselves the end of the, wow, that's awesome. God's blessing me. Without going the next step and saying, why? Okay, so why is God making that promise to me? Or why would God be pouring out that blessing on me? Am I really the end? Is this where this is supposed to end? Or does God have bigger designs? And part of that design is he's blessing me so that I would steward the blessing. Or that I would steward well the promise. And I would tell you as we come to Romans chapter 8, a very familiar passage of Scripture filled with all kinds of things that are familiar to us and particularly filled with promise and promises. That God is calling us here to steward these promises well. And how we steward them ought to directly impact how you and I live for God in 2022. So here we are, 2022. How do you feel? I'm a little tired. Stayed up later than I should have. New Year's Eve and ate a bunch of food I don't normally eat. That's not what I mean. We've been through 2020. Did anybody else happen to notice you watched any of those silly shows about the coming year that people almost couldn't help but trip over saying 2020? It's like we can't escape it. And then you see the silly memes that say, "Uh uh-oh, I just figured out that 2022 is 2022. Anyway, it's not part two. God doesn't work that way. Um, but in light of all of that, how do, you, how do you feel? What are you thinking? And really what I want to do this morning is look at Romans chapter 8, and I want us to think through how do I face a potentially fear-filled new year? Right? We know COVID's still around. And it's taking new shapes and forms. Omicron, I'm really thankful. Most people now are learning Greek. What is it going to do to the economy? What will my job look like this year? Let's actually get even more serious. Will I lose a family member this year? So how do you feel on day two? of 2022. And how should we be thinking? There's an interesting verse in Romans chapter 8. I want you to look quickly with me as we begin at verse 15. Paul writes, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into, what's the next word? Fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Daddy, Father, passionate, personal, reliable, loving, Father God. So let's look some at this passage, and then really I just want to unpack it by asking some questions and making some applications. Look at verse 1. We know it well. There is therefore now, what's the next word? No. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
I read that verse to begin this passage because it actually is setting the tone coming out of chapter 7. Context is king. We know what Paul has been doing, I think, throughout the book of Romans. We see this incredible, if you will, setting of a court case where in light of the holiness of God, all of man is indicted. Chapters 1, 2, and 3. We work through that and there's some application and and rich theology, but ultimately we come to chapter 7 and we find even the Apostle Paul there's struggling with the nature of sin in him as a redeemed man. And he talks about himself as a a rotting carcass spiritually. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this rotting carcass of flesh? And he finishes with this triumphant praise that we can thank God that the victory is ours through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he begins then this eighth chapter, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that be in Christ Jesus. And that then is the beginning, if you will, of the funnel of all of these tremendous truths. So let's go to the the verse that I want us to spend our time unpacking, and it really comes in verse 28. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you aren't saying it in your heart right now, you ought to be saying, well, amen. What then shall we say to these things? What's the point? How should I respond to that? What what should be happening in my life knowing that that is true? That is what God is doing. That is what God will do in 2022. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress? Or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things. I think that's really important. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure... That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And all God's people said. You know, you find in this passage of Scripture some amazing 
rhetorical questions. I describe them this way. They are hope hearkening, mission motivating, obedience stirring, love stimulating rhetorical questions. Notice what he does after verse 28 with these questions, I think, to somehow layer upon layer and laminate together the layers so that I have this infinitely strong foundation to understand what he has said to me that I overly simplify in verse 28. All things work together for good to those that love God and those with the called according to his purpose. We all know that, right? Notice what he does with these questions. Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? He's not saying now, you know, if you can figure out if God is for you. This is a rhetorical question. It is, it is assuming an answer. God is for us, therefore, who can be against us? Or asked another way, who's going to thwart God's plans in your life? Do you know anybody? Verse 32, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Should I anticipate God's supply if I live for Him this year? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who's going to make something stick? Verse 34, who is there to condemn? And ultimately, verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? I mean, these rhetorical questions are things we tend to blow right through. And yet they are given to us to cement the foundation for what we often, I think, know is colossal, but live as though is trite. All things work together for good. So in light of all of that, why is God saying that to you? So let's unpack it a little. First, a couple of clarifications on verse 28. When the scriptures say all things work together for good, is that true? If it is, we're going to assume then that there's some form of fate or chance, or luck, that things just somehow work themselves together for good. Is that what Paul is saying here? Or in light of even the whole context of all that he has said leading up to verse 28, is there an active agent in the circumstances of life? And there actually is an active agent. Okay, this is not looking at life and saying, well, you know what, things just work out. No, they don't. God works all things together for good to those that love him and to those who are the called according to his purpose. So when I look at this promise, the primary thing that it ought to be doing is calling me to an audience. And that audience is different than the things that I want to work together. 
that there is someone who is actively working. I picture in my mind, I'm not a musician, but I picture in my mind a grand symphony orchestra. And I, a peon with regard to music and how it works, I sit back and I close my, 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 my eyes and I listen And orally, I am stimulated to the beauty of how all of this music is working together. I don't understand it. I don't know the instruments. I understand that some are playing in different clefts than others. And some are called to play at different points in time than others. And some play at different levels of volume than others. And somehow it all comes together so that when I sit and listen to it, it is holistic and it is beautiful. And it's communicating a singular message. Melody and harmony reinforcing one another. And I know that somewhere there's a guy standing in front of them, and I often wonder, like, are they really that important? Like, if he disappeared, got out of the way, stopped waving that little stick, and I actually listen to this. But then I come to realize that there is somebody that actually is making all of that work together for good. And as important as it is that maybe I understand that about him, you understand that on the other side of him, it is really important that they know that he is working all of those parts together for good. Friends, in this promise, understand there is a grand conductor in life. And he has the attention of everything in life. And he is calling it to play when he says to play as loudly as he says to play and the part that it is to play so that to me, the audience of all things, it is working good. Secondly, the scriptures say all things work together for good. What is that good? Is Paul saying here by way of inspiration of the Holy Spirit that everything is good? I'm just going to tell you this morning. Three weeks removed from it, I'm thankful I had back surgery. Was it good? It wasn't good. Back surgery is not good. COVID? COVID's not good. You see, we're living in a fallen world. And in this fallen world that actually is described by this same Paul as a rebellious kingdom where we have a king and we don't yet see all things put under his feet. And thus, we feel this futility in life. Everything is not good. He's not speaking here to the inherent quality of things. But then think about it this way. All things work together for good. What is that good? Is this a health and wealth promise? Is this my physical good? Is this my financial good? What good is he talking about? Well, again, I think context is king. And so let's look at the beginning of this chapter. I won't read a lot of it, but let's look. Chapter 8 and verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. 
By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. You, what is Paul saying? The good that God is always working is salvation good. It is redemption good. It is sanctification good. It will eventually be glorification good. The good that God is always working is gospel good. It may be that he works gospel good for you. It may be that he works gospel good in you, sanctification. And it may very well be that he wants to work gospel good through you. And I believe that's where he ends this passage of Scripture. But the good isn't a bigger bankroll. And that's why he's going to talk about the things that he does in light of these incredible rhetorical questions. If God is for me, who can be against me? And yet he turns around and says, hmm, I'm going to quote a passage of scripture that says, for your sake, we're being slaughtered all day. How does that work? So let's unpack the promise. Just by asking some questions. Number one, who is this promise made to? Romans 8, 28. Let's read it again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So I think if I stopped for a moment, took a show of hands, asked somebody to answer, who is this promise to? I think we could begin to answer it. We've seen that not all things work together for good for everybody. The promise that God will turn all things for good, God will actually accomplish good through all things. And I think that harkens to the end of the passage where he talks about we are more than conquerors. Isn't true in everybody's case. There are two things that need to be true for this promise to apply to us as we see them in the context. One is that you love God. And the other is that you are called according to His purpose. And again, I think language is incredibly important. I think we have lost a clear concept of what it means to love. 
Thus, when we come to a passage like this and we see a promise like this and we see a phrase like this, I think it's easy for us to just gloss over it. And yet we're struck here by the fact that there's, here's this colossal promise and yet it's predicated upon this understanding. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And so I asked you a question at the beginning of 2022. Do you love God? Do you really love God? My wife and I recently were a part of a group of several couples that broke out into breakout sessions and we did sessions on marriage, just kind of two couples. We had fielded questions. We got over 150 questions from the student body. We fielded those questions and tried to, to answer some of them. And it struck us again, even as we were looking at the questions, that it's so very interesting. And we've done kind of marriage stuff on and off over you know, the years of our marriage and, and years in ministry. But as we talked about it, it became really, really clear to us that over the years where we had an opportunity to field questions, we tended to get a lot of questions about submission. Well, what's the extent of submission? Like, do I really, like, have to submit to him? Like, what about, like, at some point we get to this point, what is submission? We've got all kinds of questions. And you know what is very interesting? It struck us this time, and it struck us as we pondered it. Over all of the years of doing that and giving people opportunity to ask questions, we've not gotten questions about love. And I would tell you that knowing that, there's something really, really wrong with men. Because if you read the passage of Scripture, particularly in Ephesians, where it talks about this relationship, it starts with men, and it basically says, you're going to love in such a way that you die to yourself. Why is it that men don't say, so like, what exactly does that whole die to yourself thing mean? Like, what extent to, do, do I, like, do I love her? Like, do I really like when it comes down to as one thing and there's me and her that I would say, you know what, you first. Like, is that really what that means? I don't get questions like that. Which tells me, men, you don't actually understand what God was saying to you when he said, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And maybe we're too naive to actually ask the right questions so that we do. Because you see, if we spent a lot of time and we understood all of that, and then God turned to a lady and said, now, knowing all of that, you submit to him? Oh, yeah, no problem. Other than the fact that we're fallen. And God said that in the fall, there was going to be this crisis that happens between men and women in their roles as God gave them to them. So there's always going to be this striving. So why do I say that? Because I think we look at this passage of Scripture and I think we say to ourselves, oh yes, I'm good to go in 2022 because I love God. Do you? Do you love God because He loves you? Do you love God when He loves you? Do you love God because it makes you feel good? Do you love God because it fits your cultural setting? Do you love God because you think somehow he is going to be this colossal 2022 vending machine? Do you love God because everything always works out well and when it doesn't, you no longer love God? This is a colossal statement. 
that doesn't actually just speak to the way this promise works. It actually speaks to whether or not you can see it work. Because I love God, because I value, I mean, what words do we use? I value God, I treasure God, I cherish God, I, 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 I glorify God, I give the right opinion of God, whatever that is. As I allow it to embrace my heart in my relationship with Him, it is only then that I actually see that in the circumstances of life, He is actively, as the grand conductor, working it together to accomplish His sovereign, salvific will in my life. God, without you loving me the way you love me and allowing that thing in my fallenness to become a part of my life, I would not be made more like Jesus this way. And when I don't love God, I don't see that that's what he's doing in my circumstances. That God could take the things that aren't good and weave them together in a way to accomplish salvation good in my life so that when I am done, I look at him and I say, God, that was really hard, but I love you more. Who is this promise made to? By the way, I don't think that is connected then disconnected then from those who are the called according to his purpose. I think this is the purpose he's calling us to. It's Christ-likeness. You see that in that incredibly grand description of all that he is doing in his own. So, what should I do with that? I think the call in 2022, and I look at that and say, okay, God, why did you say that to me? I think step number one would be 2022, here's a goal. I need to love God more. What does that look like? So how do I deepen love? I think we need to explore that. Can I deepen love without knowledge and understanding? I can't. So in order to understand what God is doing in this colossal promise of that he's going to take life in 2022 and he's going to accomplish his salvation good in my life, and I want to see it in such a way that when I'm done, I'm more like him and love him better. What should I do? God, how can I get to know you more? I think it's time for us to say simply, you know what? I am going to not just read my Bible more. I'm going to read it differently. Who is the God behind this word? What is he really like? What is he really after? I think it's time to communicate with him more. One of the things I think we struggle with is that our God is real. It's just the fact that we are creatures. We live in a created world. We have five senses, all of which indicate to us reality. And God is outside them all. 
I don't taste God. I'm called to taste and see that He is good. I don't smell God, but I know that there's to Him this sweet fragrance, this aroma. And so all of these things are calling me somehow to work hard at experiencing God. So I ask you this question, how should that affect your prayer life? Are your conversations with God very rote? Or are they very real? I was reminded in talking with one of my children this week about the Psalms. And one of the amazing things about the Psalms is how they frame our communication with God. See, the Psalms give voice to our emotions. They don't shut them down. I know what I'm feeling. How do I ever say that to God? Go to the Psalms and you might find a psalmist who actually gives voice to what you're feeling. And then you can say, it's okay to talk to God that way. I think that's really, really important. But then the Psalms don't stop there. They give voice to my emotions, but then they do something else. They actually speak truth to my emotions. Now that I've said, now that I've expressed what I'm feeling, the Psalms give me an opportunity to speak truth to my emotions. And then there's a third phase, and when it's all said and done, it takes my attention to God. There's always this accolade that is poured on who my God is. In light of life and how it's making me feel, and the truth that God speaks to my emotions, and then it helps me to see who my God is. Friends, I think we need to learn to talk to God. I think it's okay to say, you know what, God, 2021 wasn't so good. In fact, you know, now that we're talking, it really stunk. Nothing went the way I thought it should go. There was an awful lot of things, God, that weren't according to my plan. I'd love in 2022, before you did anything, if you'd check in with me. But I realize that's not how it works. And while that's what's going on in my flesh, God, right now, I need your help. Because I need to live as joyfully and obediently in light of the fact that you're not going to check in with me as I think I would if you did. You see, that's submission. And it's a conversation with God that actually is giving voice to the fact that I love God. So is this promise for you? It's for those who love God. The challenge, I would say, is to make sure that it is. Secondly, then, what is the promise? What is the promise? I think we tend to want to read this as though at some point everything's going to go my way. Like it may take some time to get there. And I might have to work through some things and God eventually has to change me and God's going to do some things on me. But surely at the end of that, at some point, it means everything's going to go my way. Isn't that what this means? I would say to you that yes, if that point is heaven. But there's no promise short of that. You see, we're interesting creatures, aren't we? We're walking by faith. 
We're trying to live out our faith. We're trying to figure out what it means to live this spiritual life. And, and, and God has, in a sense, providentially, this box that is life. And in that box that is life, God is teaching us things. God is working on us. He is shaping our faith. He is, in a sense, taking the clay at some points and He is softening it so it's moldable. And then there are times when it's more shaped that He has to get out a grinder or whatever tool. And God is working on shaping us. And we come to these places in our lives of submission. We say, okay, God, I see it. I know I'm broken. I understand that, I, that I'm not flexible. And I, I realize that I, I tend to get caught up in living more for myself than I do in living for you. That in a sense, you're that, that piece that I put on at the end of it all rather than being all in all. And God, I want my attention driven to the fact that everything is about living for you. There isn't this divorce between the sacred and the secular. That whether I eat or whether I drink or whatever I do, I do all for the glory of God. That all of it is worship. But I don't live that way and I realize you're shaping me. And so, okay, God, I get it. Put me back in the box. And God puts me in the box of trials and, and, and testings and challenges, maybe suffering as it's described here. And I go through all of that and I learn. And so the trial stops and I'm out of the box. And my thought is, ah, awesome, I got it. And God shakes his head and says, "Hmm," back in the box. You see, this promise here is not, I'll work on you till you get it and then I'm done and there we go. You've reached your destination. The promise is, I'm never going to stop making you like Jesus. The scope of all things isn't just all things, it's all things all the time. I'm using all of it to shape you like my son until you're like my son. This promise isn't that as soon as we figure out the right formula, there is going to be a pathway of ease. It actually is a contentment that comes with the fact that all that God is doing is shaping me to be like Christ. Both the good and the bad but I think we read it and we get it a little bit when we hear God say all things work together for good. I don't know about you, but I don't struggle with the good things working together for good. So the fact that he would say that almost causes me to say, wait a minute, there's bad things. And God has a purpose in them. Well, that's exactly what he says. Verse 17, we'll be glorified with Christ if we suffer with him. Verse 18, the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Verse 20, creation, including us, is subjected to futility. Verse 21, creation is in bondage to decay. Verse 23, that even if we're filled with the Spirit, we groan with the fallen creation awaiting adoption and redemption. Verse 24 says that we've been saved in hope, and you can't see hope. Otherwise, it wouldn't be 
hope. And so we live in a world where we can't actually see what we need to see. All of this is frustration and futility. And that's what he says. He is working together for our salvation good. Say, Alan, wow, this is really great. Right at the beginning of the year, what you're doing is telling me that 2022 could possibly be worse than 2020. Yeah. Because God is good. And he wants to make you like Jesus. And our natural response to life being that way is what? Fear. Well, I'm just going to I'm just going to sit over here. Nothing risked, nothing lost. Maybe this will pass. And so I want us to see finally the why of the promise. Why would he make this promise? To those who are called according to his purpose. And I think simply, there's a lot to that, but I think simply there is this focus that says God has a purpose for how I'm supposed to live. There is a purpose, a God-ordained purpose for my life. And so why would he give me this promise? I think, first of all, because of the realities of life pressing in on me, he makes this promise so that I will live with necessary confidence. Well, I'm not sure I can live for God. Unless God says to me, you know what? Whatever you may face this year, I'm going to use it to accomplish my good in your life and through your life. You see, friends, I think one of the most devastating things to the Western church, or if I can narrow it to the church in America, is this. We live day in, day out, year in, year out, without ample circumstances to put Romans 8.28 to the test. I never have to struggle with whether or not God's going to use my full pantry together for good. My new car. What if I lived in a place where I knew, I knew, if I went somewhere else, I could get a surgery that would relieve my pain and I could live a whole lot better. But that's where God called me to serve and I couldn't leave it. What do I do with my God then? Do I love my God then? Do I serve my God then? You do realize that that's not just for an American who happens to go to a foreign country somewhere. That is for the bulk of all believers in this age in God's world. Crippling pain, devastating loss, and they know enough because of our media about America and the surgeries that are here, and they're never getting here to get it. It's just how they're going to live. Are they going to serve God there? Or are they going to say, man, if I could just be in America? And you see, our faith never actually gets to test Romans 8.28 because of the comfort that we allow to supplant our God.
This is to give us a necessary confidence. Because you know what? 2020 shocked us all. What do you mean a pandemic in the Western world? You know what we don't often read about? How the rest of the world that we've referred to as third world, who has been dealing with pandemics throughout time, looks at us and our response to a pandemic? And so now it has come and it's unusual to us. And one of the things that it does to us is make us say, whoa, if that happened, what's next? What else could happen? What else might come? And you know why God gives us this promise? To say, no matter what it is, I'm working it together for good. Will you love me enough to still live for me? No matter what 2022 brings. A necessary confidence, but then I want you to see also a needed security. A needed security because this promise is given to us to enable obedient faith. All right, God, I need to live for you this year. And I'm going to decide going in based upon this promise that I'm not going to do a wait and see. I'm going to live for you so I can love and see. Do you know what is so much better than the Western thought that we are facing a year filled with promise? Anybody ever hear that little phrase? New year, it's a year filled with promise. You know what? This year doesn't offer you any promise. It's a year filled with promises. And God has made them to us here. And we're not to sit and wait and see if the year happens to come up with promise. We are to respond to the year in light of the one who promised. Say, God, I'm going to live for you. This is a call to risky faith. What does that look like? Well, you're sitting here, you're beginning 2022, and you know your marriage isn't spiritually what it should be. What are you going to do? You know your parenting isn't what it should be. What are you going to do? Maybe you've looked at the last two years and, and maybe it's different than where you've been, but you know, you know that your evangelism isn't what it should be. What are you going to do? Maybe you're sitting here and we've worked through this whole new chapter of life and, and work has happened and, and we're working remotely and all of that and I get all of that, but you in honesty sit and look at you and your work ethic, which God has clearly spoken to, and you're able to look at it and say, you know what, if I'm going to be frankly honest, I'm not the workman that God expects me to be. And maybe nobody can see it, nobody's going to check on me, but God knows. And if that's the case, what are you going to do? Maybe you look at your life and, and you know your sin habits. And sadly, as life happens, we get way too comfortable with our sin habits. And maybe the way life has unfolded, you've gotten yourself involved in, I was reading this week, about the, the, the incredible surge in every kind of addictive behavior. 
And maybe that's you. And you're starting 22, and here's what God is saying to you. What are you going to do? Because this promise is to give you a needed security. I can actually start to do what God wants me to do. And he'll hold me. I sit here and I think that's going to be way too hard. But you know what? God said, I'm going to have obedient faith. And thus we come to the end of the passage. And with this I'll close. Look at verse 37. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Has that ever struck you before? How many of you would just, knowing the things that we've talked about, say, you know what, I'd be really good with being a conqueror. Overcomer, that's me, that's what I want to be. Why does he say more than conqueror? Well, I don't know. It's one of those things I'm going to ask. But there's something more than conquering, and I don't know what that is exactly, but my brain goes there. And you know what I think of? I think of the fact that there is an enemy who is bent on my destruction. Conquering him would be destroying the enemy. More than conquering him would be using the enemy to actually accomplish my good. And friends, what I want you to see here is that God says that he is the one who is working all things together for the salvation good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And that he says, as you look at the challenges as to whether or not you're going to live for me, if you'll obey, I will actually use the things that are destroying you to accomplish my salvation good in you. The challenge of fixing a marriage, God will use that to actually make you more like Jesus. And thus he is able to say this, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How do I face a potentially fear-filled new year? Maybe it's best done by stopping looking at the year and looking instead at the Lord. God has made incredible promises to us that He has supported with an unbelievably sure foundation so I understand exactly what it is He is saying. And he doesn't intend for us to walk away and say, wow, that's so awesome that God would give me a promise like that. He wants us to say, okay, God, why did you make that promise to me? Because the answer to that is how I should begin to live for you. Let's pray. Father, these are simple truths but they are colossal. 
transform our thinking, shape our loving, and enable us by your Spirit to live for you in 2022. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.